Welcome to the Citizens Youth Podcast. Citizens Youth is a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church in Vancouver, Washington. Citizens is a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit us online at nwgospel.com forward slash citizens. Hey, so everything he just said is true and not that weird. He said it was weird, but it's not that weird. Uh, Here's the truth. When I was 18 years old, I was invited by my youth pastor, who I liked. He was a good guy. I was invited by him to teach a four-week Bible study to the high school youth group at my church. Now, I was just 18. I had just graduated from high school. So it was like, these were my peers. This wasn't like I was like some adult teaching a bunch of kids. I was a kid teaching a bunch of kids. I mean, a mature young man teaching mature young people. And that was the scenario for the very first time that I ever taught the Bible. And when he asked me to do it, I said, yeah, I'll do that. That would be great. And then I got in my car and I was driving home from that meeting with him. He wanted me to teach for four weeks in a row to my peers from the Bible. And as I was driving home, I thought to myself, what have I done? What have I agreed to? And this is the truth. I hadn't even read my Bible in probably four or five years. And I had just agreed to teach it to teenagers who, um, I don't know if you know this about teenagers, but they can sniff out a fake pretty easily. They know when someone's not real. They know when someone's not genuine. And they'll even call them on it. And I had just agreed to stand up in front of them for four weeks and pretend that I understood the Bible well enough to teach it to them. So I did the fastest crash course in learning how to teach the Bible that has ever existed. I studied like crazy. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was studying. I had books out that were called, I had like books that I didn't know what they actually did. I just knew that my dad, who was a preacher, always used these books when he studied and got ready for a sermon. So I had all these books laid out on the dining room table, and I had like this giant legal pad. Do you know what that is? Like it's an extra long pad because you have lots of notes you're going to write. So I had a legal pad, and I was just writing copious notes, and I'm filling out all this stuff, and I'm doing all this study, and, and, I, and I'm trying to put together this four-week series, and I didn't even know what to speak about, so I chose something really easy. I decided I would talk about the Trinity and try and explain that to high school kids. So that's how God exists as three and one. It's, It's a really simple thing to understand. So I thought I would just take my four weeks to explain that to a bunch of high schoolers, even though I understood nothing about it myself. So I, I actually, if I went home tonight, I could probably find the notes from that series that I taught, and that was when I was 18 years old, And that's um, a long time ago that I was 18 years old. It's been a lot of years, but I kept the notes. And here's why I kept them, because it was horrible. It was so bad. My content was bad. It might have even, I don't even know if I was saying stuff that was true through some of the things that I was saying. I was repeating stuff that was in books. I was plagiarizing like crazy. I didn't know what I was doing. But about 30 minutes into that very first lesson that I taught to the high school students that night, God spoke to me. It wasn't the first time he'd spoken to me. It was the second time. The first time that he spoke to me, he spoke to me when I was in a jail cell, which God does. I know that from the Bible now, but I didn't know it at the time. At 16 years old, I was in jail. I was in trouble, and I knew I was going to be in more trouble when my parents found out that I was in jail, and I was sitting there in jail, and the other guys in the jail cell were looking at me, and I got really scared. Not because I thought they were going to beat me up. Not because I thought they hated me. Not because I thought I was going to die there. 
I felt scared because they were very accepting of me. I looked around this cell, and these guys were guys who were going nowhere, and they liked me. And I was so afraid of that, and I heard God's voice, and he said, I did not create you for this. And I totally agreed with him. I was like, you did not create me for this. I can't wait to get out of here. I was only in there for an hour. I got out. I never went back to jail, and that's really good news. But that night when I was finishing that Bible study, I was about 30 minutes into it. And um, by the way, I had no intention of telling this story at all, but Sam's introduction made me think of it. So here we go. I'm 30 minutes into it, and God spoke to me again, and here's what he said. He said, I created you this way for a reason. First time I heard him speak to me, he said, I did not create you for this. And I knew that to be true. And the second time I heard him speak to me, he said, I created you this way for a reason. And so I went to my youth pastor afterwards, and I got through the four weeks of teaching that Bible study. And again, it was, it was horrible. Some people probably uh, turned their back on God because of the things I taught them. No, I'm just kidding. They're all, they're all good Christians, I'm sure. Uh, but... I went to my youth pastor after that first time and I just said to him, I think, I think it was after I was finished the whole series, I went to him and I said, I think God's talking to me. And I had not said that out loud to anybody yet. And I thought he was going to say, well, that's weird. Like, what are you talking about, James? And I said, I said, I think God's talking to me. He said, oh, really? Well, that's great. What do, you, what do you think God is saying? And I was like, well, that's the weird part. I think God is telling me that I'm supposed to teach the Bible to teenagers. And he was like, well, James, that's great. Like, that's amazing. That's so cool. That would be awesome if you did that. And I said, yeah, 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 whatever. Can you do that for a living? Like, can you, could, I, could I make money at that? How would I do that? And he goes, James, you know, that's what I do, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, you do. I was like, Wait, you get paid? Um, so apparently youth ministry is actually a full-time profession. He had an office and everything, and I never really pieced it together. And that's what I did with my life. I, I never have lost that calling that God placed on me to teach the Bible to teenagers, which is one of the reasons I'm standing in front of you tonight. It's not what I do for a living anymore, but every chance that I get to do it, I try and do it. I did it for 25 years as a youth pastor, and now I get to do it um, at moments like this, which is fantastic. And there's my really, really unprepared intro, because we're actually talking about the tale of two kingdoms. So let's talk about that. So I love stories about kingdoms. So anything with like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, anything about any, I love, like when I was a child listening to Bible stories, the, one that, the, the ones that I loved the most were like about King David and his best friend Jonathan, and the battles that they fought. And I, I love that kind of stuff. I love all of that. And so kingdom language, to me, has, it evokes all kinds of things. And one of the things that it comes to mind is, what, where, basically, where does the kingdom exist? What is the scope of the kingdom? For sure the kingdom exists wherever the castle is, right? Wherever the palace is, wherever the throne is, wherever the king sits, the kingdom is there. It's got to be. That's, he's the king. But where else, where does the kingdom end? What's the scope of the kingdom? How big is the kingdom? And, and here's the answer to that question. If you're wondering what the answer is, the answer is, this is not in your notes, don't look for it. The answer to that question is, the kingdom exists wherever the will of the king is done. That's where the kingdom exists. 
So if you're talking about these two kingdoms, and, I, and the way I understand it is the one kingdom is the kingdom of me, my own kingdom, the kingdom where I sit on the throne and I make the rules and, and I decide you know, who gets their head chopped off and all that stuff. That's my, that's my domain because I'm the king on the throne. In the kingdom of me, that kingdom only exists where the will of the king is done, which means it's probably a pretty small kingdom. It's a pretty tight kingdom, small, not very consequential in the, in the bigger scope of things because it's just my kingdom where I'm the king. But where God sits on the throne, in, the, in God's kingdom, wherever God's will is done, anywhere on the planet, his kingdom exists. It's a key difference between those two kingdoms. All right, I want to... Before we get to the passage that we're going to look at tonight, and you already know where it is because Sam told you where it is, but I want to, I just want to show you this. You're going to love this. Do you know, does anyone here know what this is? It is a rock. Does, it kind of looks like a potato. It's not a potato. It's actually a rock. Um, does anyone here know specifically what this rock is? Anyone in the room know specifically what this rock is? Do you? Layla, what is this rock? That's my dog. This is your dog's rock. So Layla <laughs> is my daughter, and, and she, I'm super happy with me right now, I'm guessing, because I didn't tell her I was going to do this. This is, we have a dog, a little dog, a little corgi. I don't know if you know that cor, what a corgi is, but they're short. They have no tail because we abuse them when they're born. We chop off their tail. Um, but we do it because it makes them cute the rest of their lives, and that's what matters. Um, <laughs> That's a lesson for you. Write that in your notes. As long as you're cute for the rest of your life, the pain at one, year, at one day old is worth it. So our dog, Penny, is this, is this cute little corgi. When we lived in Colorado, that's where we first uh, adopted her into our family. When Penny came into our family, she found this rock in our backyard. And I am not joking. This is Penny's best friend. She loves this rock. Sometimes she, she shoves the rock under the couch and she can't get at it and she goes into a little mini state of depression for a few days until I figure out that her rock is missing. I go and find it, pull it out, and then she has her rock again. But here's what she does with this rock. She will take this rock and she will just shove it a little bit with her nose and it'll start to roll because it's kind of round. It's like a river rock from Colorado. It's kind of round and she shoves it with her nose and it starts to roll a little bit. And when it rolls, she thinks it's running away from her and she freaks out and like starts kicking it and chasing it and then she nudges it further and then it hits the slippery part of the floor and it goes flying across the kitchen and then she's trying to scratch across the floor to get look at that see how it rolled oh give me that give me that so that's what she's like she if she I didn't mean to drop that at all if she if she pushes it she chases it and she sometimes chases it and it goes under the refrigerator and we lose the rock and we forget about it and she because she loves the rock goes and finds a substitute she will go out into our yard she will find a rock and she will bring it into the house but she always finds little rocks. We don't have big rocks. We don't have, her, her mouth is small enough that she could not swallow this if she tried. But when she finds a substitute rock, she always finds those that are way too small and she could literally die if we let her have that rock. Is the title of my message up there? Do we have the title? In the notes? 
there's a reason we don't eat rocks. That's the title of my message. <laughs> there's a reason that we don't eat. There's a reason that we have to take that rock away from her. As much as she wants to play with that rock, as much as she wants to enjoy that rock, we have to take that rock away from her, give her back this rock, which we know we can't harm her, because it will kill her. But of course, in her little doggy kingdom mindset, that rock is perfect. It's good. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with that rock. I got it in the yard. It's my rock. I want to play with it. In our human kingdom mindset, where we have to pay like veterinary bills and stuff like that, we realize, no, that rock is not the best rock for you. In the kingdom mindset that we have, if we sit on the throne of our kingdom, we think we know what's good for us. We think we have it all, we think we have it all figured out. We think that we understand what would be best for us. But there is a mindset that is much higher than ours, that, and the scope of that kingdom is much broader than ours, and the understanding of that king is much more aware than we are. And in his mindset, he looks at us and he understands what's actually good for us. I want to take you to this passage um, because Jesus taught us something about prayer, something about communing with the king, something about what it means to actually communicate with the king of the real kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what it's like to actually communicate. And I want you to look at this because Jesus took the time to teach us to pray. This isn't the only place where he did this, but Jesus took the time he had a lot he was doing when he lived and did ministry for three very short years on earth that he was actually doing ministry of, of the part that we have recorded that we know about. He did so much in that time. But on several occasions, he took time to talk to us about how to pray. And this is one of those occasions. And here's why he, to he told us that. Here's why he decided to do that. Because he knows how it works. In fact, not only does he know how prayer works, he knows that it works. He knows that prayer works, and so he taught us to do it because he knows this would be good for us, and he knows that it's going to work. So let's look at this passage, if you will, Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. And here's what it says. It says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, this is kind of a rhetorical question, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Little tiny rock. <laughs> who would do that for their son when, they, when he's looking for something to eat? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake. If you then, though you were evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus giving us some instructions about how to pray, and he's even helping us understand why to pray. So here's three questions that I think Jesus answers here. Not overtly. He doesn't just come out and say, here's the answer to three questions. But the answers are in there. Just follow with me, okay? He says this. When, we, when can we pray? Here's the answer that he gives to that. All the time. 
When can we pray? All the time. How does this start? It says, ask and it will be given to you. There's no precursor to ask. There's plenty of things that he's talking about here, but there's no precursor to this section on on prayer where he says, now, if you get it all together, if you figure out all the things that you've been doing wrong and you confess all those things and you make sure that your heart is pure and good and you are a righteous person, then you can enter the presence of the king. Then you're allowed to ask. Then you're allowed to seek. Then you're allowed to knock. He doesn't say that. He just says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. When can we pray? Anytime. All the time. There's another place where Paul writes, and he talks about praying without ceasing. Have you ever heard that verse, praying without ceasing, or pray endlessly? Can, have you ever tried to figure out what that actually means? Have you spent any time trying to imagine what that would look like? If you were constantly praying, what would happen? I'm, I'm, I'm going to actually answer my own question, just for time's sake. What would happen if you were constantly praying? If you were constantly praying, the way you're thinking about prayer right now, you would run out of words. Would you not? If you were constantly praying, always praying, praying without ceasing, never stopping, you would run out of words. You would probably run out of breath and you would never be able to sleep or eat or kiss somebody because it would be weird if you were praying and kissing somebody at the same time. So that's only if you're praying out loud. You can pray in your head and still kiss somebody, I suppose, but that's weird. So don't, don't practice that. All right, so, so if you're praying... With this, so I just realized some of you are like, I would totally do that. I, if, if I had someone to kiss, I would totally pray and kiss them. I'd just be like, thank you, Jesus. Can't believe I'm kissing this person. This is unbelievable. So good. Not in my notes. Don't, don't write it in yours. So here's how it's possible to pray without ceasing. Here's how it's possible to pray endlessly. If you think about prayer this way, if you only think about prayer in one way, and that is prayer involves words, all right? If that's what you believe prayer is, you will have trouble praying without ceasing. You won't be able to do it. We could try it just for an hour right now, and none of us probably would be really good at it and be ready to pray without ceasing for an hour, all right? So if you consider that prayer is just words, That's the only way we pray is with our words or maybe with words that are in thought form. If that's the only way we pray, then we cannot do what the Bible says about prayer. Pray all the time. So how can we do it? Prayer is much more than just words. Prayer is actually communion. Now, don't think about communion as in on Sunday morning, we take crackers and a cup and we do that thing and we we eat. That's, that's, That's taking communion. But having communion with God means that we are in constant communication and communion with him. Always. Everywhere we are. So I used to teach my students this. I used to teach them that communication with God is one thing. Communion with God is a much bigger thing. And so it's possible to constantly be in communion with God. It's possible to live your life, to live your day with the presence of God always in your mind. Not constantly talking to God, but the presence of God always in your mind, knowing that if you are a follower of Jesus, he actually is dwelling inside you by his Holy Spirit, so you are never not with him. 
That was a double negative, and I totally intended it. You are never not with God if the Spirit of God dwells in you. So you are in constant communion with God. That, whether you want to call it that or not, is prayer. That's what prayer is. So prayer sometimes includes our words, but prayer is always communion with God. We can always be in communion with God. So I used to tell my students this, and we were out for lunch one day with a bunch of students, and we're sitting there, and, and we're just, we just sat down to eat in a restaurant. I don't remember where we were, and one of the girls just grabs her sandwich and just like, just takes a huge bite. And everybody just stopped, like, like not because it was a gross bite. It was, but not why that. We all stopped because she didn't pray. And so someone said, uh, you going to pray for that? Actually, it was me. I said, uh, are, you gonna wait? are you gonna wait until we actually pray here? And she turns to me and she goes, oh James, I commune with God all the time. I don't have to pray and say, say thank you for my food, I just eat. I was like, oh, don't use my teaching against me. I hate that, I hate that so much. But that's what it looks like. That's what it means to commune with God. So can, when can we pray? We can pray all the time. So if we can pray all the time, what can we pray about? Everything. Fill in the blank. We can pray about everything. There isn't anything that you encounter. There isn't anything that you experience. There isn't anything that you go through that God doesn't already know about. And so in your communion with him, you can talk about that. Think about it this way. If your parents knew that you were doing something, let's say you were doing something bad or even something good, and your parents knew that you were doing something great, like, they, like you were doing really well on the debate team or something like that, and your parents knew all about it, but when you came home from one of, the, one of your debate meets, you wanted to talk to them about it, do you think they would go, oh, no, I already know about that. I'm, already, I'm totally aware that you're in debate. Let's not get into an argument over it or anything, because you'll win, because you're in debate. So... Your parents don't treat you that way. They don't treat you that way just because they know what's going on in your life. They actually want to bring that in. They, they want to actually engage with you about that. So that's, that's what prayer can look like, that you would share anything with God and everything with God. Here's one of the things that you can share with God. If you are super angry at God for something he has done or something he has not done that you expected him to do. Do you know that you can talk to him about that? That you can share that with him? Do you know that you can yell that at him if you want to? You can scream that to him if you need to? Why? Because he's the king. <laughs> the kingdom belongs to him. And everything in it he cares about. Everything in it matters to him. You matter to him, and your pain matters to him, and your anger matters to him. And the things that you feel are un unfair and unjust, those things matter to him. You can take those things to him when you pray. Imagine it this way, because it says here the instruction is to ask, seek, knock. Imagine a child looking for their dad, running through the whole house, finally figures out that they're seeking Okay, they're, they're seeking through the house for their dad. Finally figures out that he's in his office and the door is closed to his office. So they go and they knock on the door and he opens the door and he invites them in and then the child asks them whatever it is that's on their heart. It could be simple. Glass of water. I want a hug. 
I wonder why the sky is blue. Whatever it is that they come in with, the Father opens the door and allows them. That's the image you should have when it comes to what am I allowed to talk to God about? Whatever you're wandering through the house looking for him, thinking about, when you get to that door and knock on that door, whatever's burning in your heart, and he opens the door and you step in, you can say that. In his presence, you can say that. He wants to know what your question is. He wants to know what your request is. He wants to know what your thoughts are. He wants to commune with you. He's created it that way. Jesus is speaking from experience. I'm convinced we don't know a lot about Jesus' life up until he was like age 30-ish. We don't know very much about him, but I am convinced with this. He communed regularly with his heavenly father. He knew God personally. He engaged with him in this way, and now he's teaching his followers how to do that as well. The promise here is that God will answer the door. He will be found. He will welcome you, and the prayer can be whatever's on your heart. So here's the problem with that. I believe what I just said is very true. But if what you heard was, whatever I bring to God, he's going to grant me. Whatever I ask him, he's going to give it to me. Whatever I seek, I get it from him. So I start thinking about all the things that I want, and I can wander through the house and find the, the office door and knock on it, and he welcomes me in. And I go in and I say, yeah, I want that car. I want that Ferrari. And because I'm seeking and knocking and asking, you're going to give me that, right? Well, you know, it doesn't work that way. We'd all have Ferraris, wouldn't we? Maybe Maybe a Lamborghini here or there. But we'd all have, you know, we would all have whatever we wanted. Everybody would have whatever they wanted if that's the way that prayer worked. But here's what we can expect. We can't expect that. You cannot expect that God would give you everything that you ask for if, in fact, he knows that it's not what you need. But here's what you can expect when you pray. Good things. You can expect good things from a good God. That's what you can expect. Things that will benefit you and not harm you. God does not look to harm you. A good father knows what his children need and will give it to them. That's what the whole illustration of the, the stone instead of bread and the snake instead of a fish. That's talking about a good father would not do that. And even lousy fathers on earth are pretty pretty sure not going to give their kids a stone when they ask for bread. But your heavenly father would not do that. He would not give you something that isn't good for you, something that would harm you, something that would choke you. That's not what he's going to give you when you come to him and when you ask for things. He's going to give you what is good, what is best. God is our good father, and he wants to give us what is good for us. When we ask for something we need, and he knows we need it, he will give it to us. But we also must trust that he knows more than we do what is actually good for us. I want to tell you a story. And this, uh, it's, it's a bit of a long story, but this is what I'm going to conclude with. Uh, a few years ago, quite a few years ago, I, um, I was in Mexico on a mission trip. And uh, I took a bunch of students down there, and we were getting ready to leave the house one day to go to the work site where we were working on painting something. I don't remember what, which tells you how valuable that moment was for me. <laughs> I painted something in Mexico. But as we're driving towards the work site, 
I, uh, I realized that I had forgotten my sunglasses. And I said to the, the missionary, I said, can we turn around and go back to the house? I left my sunglasses there. And one of my students was like, oh, we wouldn't go back if I left my sunglasses there. And I was like, oh, you're right. And so he's like, he's turning turn the car around. We're heading back. And I just explained to him. I just said, hey, I, um, sorry, uh, I'm supposed to wear sunglasses pretty much all the time when I'm outside. I have this eye condition. And and that's pretty much all I said. And he really pushed. He was like, what's your eye condition? What's that all about? And I said, well, I have this disease called keratoconus, and it's a degenerative um, corneal disease that causes your corneas to become misshapen. And eventually, they actually burst. They actually split, and you go blind. And the only treatment then at that point is to get a corneal transplant, which means you're waiting for somebody else to donate their corneas so that you can have new corneas in your eyes. So... All of you should be cornea donors. Um, so I'm telling him this story, and he said, now keep in mind, I'm a pastor, all right? I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for years. I'm on a mission trip. We're all Christians. He's a missionary. This is all great stuff. And he says, have you ever had anybody pray for healing for your eyes? And I was like, hmm, I have not. The other thing you need to understand is that I was a part of this, um, this board that would interview people who were getting ready to be pastors, and I would read all of their papers that they would, that they would write, uh, these theological papers. And the papers that I graded all the time, I was in charge of all the papers on physical healing from the Bible. So I was surrounded with this idea of prayer and healing, and I had never once even considered to ask anybody to pray for me and pray for my eyes and pray for this condition. So... Uh, the week goes on, well, he, and so the missionary, uh, Leonard, just said, hey, you know what, before the week's over, we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray over you. And I was like, great, let's go paint something. So we did, we went and painted something for the rest of the week, and it came down to the last night that we were there, and we had this service, and we started to, uh, we started to pray, and, and Leonard got up in front of everybody, so there was a, ro- a room full of Mexican teenagers and American teenagers that had come together to do this project together, and, and Leonard was kind of like their youth pastor, and I was the youth pastor of all these Americans that had come down, these the United States Americans versus the Mexican Americans. Anyway, um, he had, I, I, we'd gone down there, and, and so we're all sitting in this room together, and we're all praying, and, and Leonard says, guys, I, wanted, I want us to gather around James, and I want us to pray for James's eyes. And my students are like, we got to pray for his eyes? What's going on with James's eyes? Because I hadn't told anybody. I literally had not ever told any of my students that I had this eye condition. So they came and I kind of explained what was going on. And so they said, okay. And they gathered around. They started praying. Some in English, some in Spanish. And everybody's praying over me. And, and they put their hands on me. And I immediately started weeping. And I don't, uh, I don't cry easily. Actually, I do now. Back then, I never cried very easily. It was very difficult for me to cry. I just didn't. Uh, it just... It was just not natural for me. I just didn't cry. But as soon as they laid their hands on me and began to pray, I started to cry. And it was like ugly cry. It was a good thing that like my head was bowed and everything because I'm sure I did not look attractive. But I'm weeping and weeping. And, and I remember thinking to myself, what is going on with you? Like, what are you crying about? There's, they just started praying. Like, I, you, I, I don't even understand what half of them are saying. And I'm just weeping like a baby and I can't figure it out. And I'm crying and I'm crying and I started to pray to God. And I realized as I was praying that it was the first time I had prayed in about a year. Now I was a pastor. So of course I prayed. Like I could get up in front of people and lead people in prayer. 
I could pray before a meal. I could pray at a, at a service. I could do all of that. But this was the first time in about a year that I was praying in communion with God, that I knew he was present, that I knew we were communing with one another, that I was being honest with him. And here's why I hadn't prayed for an entire year. It was because I had stopped believing in prayer. I actually hadn't stopped believing in prayer. I just had doubts about what happens when we pray. And here was my question. Maybe you have this question. My question was, when I pray, what happens with my prayer? What happens with the things that I pray? So, for example, at that time, I remember I had prayed for some soldiers who I knew who were sitting somewhere in the Middle East in a foxhole, friends of mine, guys that I knew, and I had prayed for them that they would have peace. And as I prayed that prayer, I, I thought to myself, now, what did that do? What happened just now when I prayed that? Did angels go and surround them and provide peace? Did the Spirit put peace into their hearts? Did somehow my prayers become known to them in their heads that they knew someone was praying for peace and that brought them peace? What happened with my prayer at that moment that I prayed it was my big problem. And the scariest answer to the question was maybe nothing. Maybe nothing happened with that prayer for those soldiers. And if nothing happened, if, the, if they didn't feel peace, if it didn't bring them peace or, or some comfort or feel like that, that God had somehow done something to acknowledge them and where they were, if it had not done anything, then wasn't that just a waste of my time, what I just did over here? So that's a really long thought that I had as I was sitting there in the chair in Mexico weeping, but I realized it was the first time in a year that I had actually opened myself up again to actually have communion, to actually pray and speak and be with God. And it was causing me to weep. And here's what I started to pray. I started to pray, God, I know you can heal me. And, and you may heal me right here tonight. But I do not want to be healed if it doesn't bring glory to you. Don't bring, don't bring me healing just for my sake. Don't bring me healing just so I can continue playing basketball and driving a car and doing all the things that people who can see can do. Don't bring me healing for that reason. Bring me healing only if it, if it is going to gain glory for your name. If you can be glorified through this, then you can heal me. I would, I would love for you to heal me if you can be glorified, and that was my prayer. And then they kept praying over me, and it went on for a long time, and so my prayer began to switch. I began to change what I was praying, and here's what I started to pray next. I was, this is, meanwhile, they're gathered around me, their hands around me, they're all praying for me, and I started to pray this. This was silently, only in my head that I was praying these things, but I just said, God, I also believe that you may not heal me here tonight. I may not be physically healed here tonight, but I want you to know that I trust that you can do it. I believe that you can heal me. I believe that healing is totally in your hand. It is totally possible. You are capable. You are powerful. You have dominion over all of this. You have dominion over my eyes and over this disease. You can do it. I believe you can do it. Even if I'm not healed, my faith is restored. You can do it. I believe it. And then as I was sitting there, and now this is where it gets a little weird, and I don't want you to get weirded out, but here you go. As I was sitting there, I began to have a vision. And the vision was me. The, the vision's actually weird, weird enough in its own, let, let alone the fact that I had a vision. But here's what the vision was. The vision is me sitting in my eye doctor's chair, and my eye doctor saying to me after an exam, I don't see any sign of keratoconus in your eyes. 
And I saw it. I saw an image. And in, I think it was in my mind. It may have been somewhere on the floor in the room. I don't know. But I saw an image of me in that chair and the doctor saying that. And then the prayer time ended and we all went back to our houses. And I, I remember taking my glasses off and looking around the room. I'd been crying for like an hour. So like everything's foggy. I'm like, I think I got worse. Like <laughs> it's not better at all. And, and I couldn't tell if I could see better. I couldn't tell if I was healed. I could tell some of my students were kind of like, so how are the eyes? They didn't actually say it, but I could tell they were kind of like, hey, got anything for me? They're kind of like trying to figure out if, they, if I'm healed, if their prayers worked, if their faith worked, if they were just like looking for a miracle, super excited about it. So actually, before we got, we got up to leave to, to go back to the house, one of the Mexican teenagers came to me and she said through a translator, she said, um, James, I feel like God wants me to say something to you. I feel like he's telling me to tell you something. I said, Bring it on, whatever you got. I can't see anything. It's all foggy in here. I've been crying. I have puffy eyes, but whatever you got. And so she starts to share, and she said, she said, I felt like while we were praying for you that God was going to heal you tonight, but that he was only going to do it for his glory. That's what I heard God say, and he wanted me to tell you that. I was like, wow, thank, uh, Brenda, thank you. That, that's very similar to something that I was praying, so thank you for sharing that. And then a Mexican a guy, teenager guy, comes over to me, and he, he spoke English, so he just starts talking. He says, he says uh, James, I feel like God wants me to tell you something. I was like, okay, let's hear it. And he said, while we were praying for you, I had this sense that God wants you to know that even if you're not healed here tonight, that he absolutely has the power to heal you, that he can do it. And so, you know, I start crying again. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks for sharing that. That really means a lot to me. It's similar to something that I was praying. So thank you. I'm glad you honored what God was saying to you and shared that with me. Get in the cars, go back to the house. I'm exhausted. I'm absolutely exhausted. As soon as we get back to the house, I just want to go to bed. And one of the, one of the students, one of my students, a guy named Nick, comes up to me and he just goes, ah, James... I got to talk to you, and it's, it's weird. It's going to be weird. I just got to tell you now. And I was like, all right, let's talk. So we go outside, and we sit down on the curb, and, and he just said, he goes, I, this is weird. Nothing like this has ever happened before. I can't even believe I'm about to tell you this, but while we were praying for you tonight, I had a vision, and I felt like I saw you sitting in the chair of your eye doctor's office, and your doctor was saying, I don't see keratoconus in your eyes at all. And you said back to them, yeah, that's because I was healed in Mexico. And then I was like, what in the world is going on? Like, what just happened over the last two hours of my life? <laughs> like, it was just amazing, unbelievable, but I could not process it. I could not, I had, no, I had no capability to process what had happened. I was thankful, it was amazing, but I couldn't process, and I actually didn't tell anybody. I didn't even... I didn't even tell anybody what had happened. Like, I didn't get all those people together and say, you prayed what I prayed, and you prayed what I prayed, and you said what I, you saw what I saw. I didn't do any of that. The trip ended. We went back, and I just went back into normal ministry life. Two weeks later, I'm on a totally different mission trip, totally different group, in the middle of the Czech Republic. I'm in a different continent, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm sitting in a room with a guy I barely know. We ended up being roommates for the first couple of nights of training we were there. I barely know him, and we start to talk, and he's this theology guy, and he wants to talk theology, and somehow the topic of prayer came up while we're sitting there, and he starts to talk about prayer, and I start weeping. Now I'm in a room with a total stranger, and actually, we were already, like, we'd already gotten in our beds, and the lights were out, so I'm, like, weeping 
in a dark room with a stranger. It was, it was really, really odd. And I started to cry. And again, I was like, what is going on with my crying? Like, what am I crying about? I don't even know what I'm crying about. And then God revealed to me what I was crying about. I realized that that moment that I had been praying, that I'd been praying sitting there in that room in Mexico, the first time I'd communed with God in over a year, I realized that that moment was really significant for me because God was speaking to me. And here's what he was telling me, and this is the point of the story. He said, James, when you pray, what happens with your prayers is not up to you. You don't pray so that you get to decide what the outcome of your prayers are. You pray because I've invited you to pray. You pray because my son Jesus has taught you to pray. You pray because the spirit that lives within you makes it possible for you to pray. What happens with your prayers doesn't depend on you. It's not up to you. It's up to me. I am your good God, and it's up to me. And I want you to know one thing about prayer, James. I don't remember it being a long speech like this, but this is, what you, this is what God said to me. He said, I want you to understand one thing about prayer. When you pray, I hear you. And as evidence, I told you three different ways in Mexico that I heard your prayers, that I was there with you. Young people in this room, when you pray, God hears you. And that God is the God of the kingdom that is expansive. Everywhere the will of the king is done, the kingdom is at hand. Everywhere. And that means inside of you as well. It means in this room. It means all around the world. Wherever the will of the king is done. So when it comes to prayer, don't not pray. It's another really ugly double negative that I intended to use. Don't stop praying. Even if it's hard for you, even if you're not sure you can, that God can hear you, even if you feel that invisible ceiling, your prayers go this far and they go no further, you don't know what happens with them. It's not up to you what happens with them. It's up to God to do something with them. But I'll tell you this, he's a good God who wants the best for you. So when you pray, he will do what is good and best and right with your prayers. I was healed that night in Mexico. I don't know if it was my eyes that were healed, but it was certainly my faith that was healed. I believe now in prayer. I believe now that God does good things with my prayers, whether I see it, whether I understand it, whether I know about it, or I don't. And sometimes he reveals what he's done with my prayers, and that's amazing. Sometimes he does not and that's amazing because I trust him. I know you'll ask, so I'll just finish the story with this. Um, one of the signs that you have keratoconus is that your, your eye prescription, your glasses prescription, changes constantly because your corneas are always shaping and reshaping themselves, and they're, they're doing weird things, and your prescription has to be changed in order to adjust to that, which is a colossal pain. Uh, if you have that disease, that you would actually have to constantly have your lenses changed in your glasses and have that adjustment always done. I have not had a single change in my lenses since that night in Mexico. Not one. And we're talking 15 years it's been since I've had that. Now, 
doctors look at my eyes and they go, yeah, I think you have keratoconus. But they also go, "Eh, it doesn't really seem to act like keratoconus. And to one of them, I actually said, I just said to her, all the courage in me, I just was like, here we go. I'm just going to do it. It was a vision. I'm just going to do it. Here we go. And she said, yeah, it doesn't look like keratoconus. I don't know exactly how to explain it. And clearly you had it in these older images, but these newer images we're looking at don't look like it. And I said, I know. It's because I was healed in Mexico. And she goes, (laughs) and she literally said, well, that's... uh, that's, that's nice. It's a $35 copay on your way out the door, so thanks for coming by. I was like, ah, oh, I thought she was going to follow her knees and ask Jesus into her heart. I didn't, the vision did not play out for me, so. So, here's what I want to do. I want to, I just want to pray over you, and I want you to join me in prayer, all right? So we can all pray at the same time. Do it quietly. Um, I don't know if you know that um, in Korea, they all pray out loud at the same time, so confusing to me. I have no way to concentrate. I cannot join in. I just sit and listen to other people's prayers, which I don't think you're supposed to do. So here's what I want to do. I just want to pray over you, but I want you all to join me in this prayer, all right? So not out loud, but I want you to commune with God in this prayer. And here's what I want you to actually be praying about. Whatever it is that's on your heart, whatever you've come into the office with, you've knocked on the door, he's opened the door, he's welcomed you in, and he's ready to hear what you have to say. So whatever it is right now, just bow your head so you're not distracted by somebody else. Begin to commune with God. Invite his spirit to open your ears and your eyes to what he might want to say or show you. Imagine that you've already sought God and knocked on the door and he's opened it. He wants to hear now what you want to say, what your request is, what your desire is, what your question is, what your thought is. Let's just begin to share that with him now. that you're responding to right now. So much good that you want to do with the things that you're hearing, the things that you already knew about, the things that you care infinitely about. God, would you create in us a desire to commune with you with our whole lives without ceasing, never-ending prayer, not sitting around waiting to see the proof of what you've done with our prayers, but trusting in a good God who wants to do good in our hearts, in our lives. Do your work.